So transportation is a big source of pollution, right? The biggest source of pollution in the United States. So like exactly 50 years, petroleum was 95% of transportation energy. And the first thing that brought it down was actually the rise of ethanol in 2008. We need to talk about it, think about it, and figure out ways to make it better. And uh, oh, like, we're not. It's not a fight between options. The actual fight should be to maximize the options. Basically, the refining industry thinks that the big reset gives them all the tools they need to give the RFS a huge haircut. That war has already started in Washington, D.C. It's nice to imagine the completely different future where we just erase everything we have now and we start over with a clean sheet of paper. How do we get from here to there? Everyone's attention just like solely focused on EVs as this silver bullet. I have to believe that at some point the pendulum is going to swing away from EVs. This is Corn Saves America, a podcast exploring agriculture's environmental solutions from ethanol to carbon markets. I'm Sarah Mock. I find that there are few ideas that inspire existential dread in the minds of casual ethanol pundits, quite like the rise of electric vehicles. Even the threat of the refining industry pales in comparison to a possible future where no one even uses an internal combustion engine anymore. After all the time I'd spent learning about and understanding the history of the RFS and ethanol's ongoing issues with everyone from environmentalists to big oil, I worried that all of that might soon be moot. But what I learned about today, the next decade, and the next 30 years in the U.S. transportation sector is a much more complicated story, especially when we start to think about the possible futures of biofuel policy and how ag carbon markets might play a role in reducing emissions from ethanol production. So let's get into it. Just about every expert I spoke with offered a unique perspective on what could, should, or would be ahead for the RFS and the ethanol sector in the coming years. And all of them start where we are today. Brent offers one perspective. We produce pretty much all that we can with the renewable fuel standard. And so until either we have higher level blends or something, that's where it's going to be. Looking forward, I am not uh, a person who sees the demise of the industry. I think ethanol will continue to to exist for quite some time, at least any time frame that I want to forecast over. But I don't. I, don't, I think the tremendous growth of the industry is probably in the past. But not everyone is willing to give up on the idea of growing the ethanol sector so easily. Here's Scott Irwin from the University of Illinois on the current battle to fuel ethanol's growth into the future. It's a battle over future market share. It's clear that the ethanol industry has never been satisfied with 10% of gasoline. They for sure want 15%. The petroleum refining industry doesn't want to give up that 5%. Boom, you have a kind of clash of the titans in political terms in D.C. I I think the crude oil industry feels that they got snookered on RFS2 in particular and gave up more market share to ethanol than they thought that they would. And there's drawing a line in the sand and saying no more. Not one more gallon of lost market share to ethanol. So it's really about where... Future growth of market share in ethanol, that I believe is where all of the political heat really comes from. It's clear from Scott's comments that the idea that the liquid fuel pie could still be grown to benefit both refiners and ethanol is a thing of the past. In fact, it's pretty evident because of the political and social pressure that has arisen around climate mitigation that the liquid fuels pie is getting smaller all the time as consumers and policymakers alike look to cleaner alternatives. It's for that reason that ASU's Dr. Hannah Breitz argues that this political heat is not actually a good indicator of what's really important in these discussions. So much of all this debate focuses on that 10 to 15, that margin, but it's embedded in something larger that's really talking about the future of transportation and vehicles and like a much bigger trajectory. That's where I think that kind of more interesting conversation from my perspective is... So what is out there in the future of transportation? 
If today's current hype can be summed up in a word or phrase, it would be electrification or electric vehicles. And for the casual observer, the growing prevalence of electric vehicles might make this battle over 5% of market share look a little bit like a fight over rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But the casual observer might also think, how hard could it really be to electrify the U.S. fleet? The answer to which is probably a lot harder than you'd think. To dig into this, we're going to spend a lot of time today with Jeremy Martin from the Union of Concerned Scientists, who has spent much of the last few years thinking and writing about the future of the transportation sector, and in particular how oil, biofuels, and electricity fit into what comes next. He says despite all the hype, the long-term trends give him pause when thinking about the future of electric vehicles. So like exactly 50 years, petroleum was 95% of transportation energy. And the first thing that brought it down was actually the rise of ethanol in 2008. So when it became 95%, it was actually because of the decline of coal used for steam-fired locomotives. So in some sense, I think that's interesting bookends on the kind of petroleum era. But where is electricity on that chart now? It's nowhere. It's not even close to 1%. It's really a rounding error. So when we think about this opportunity to cut oil use by 50, 80, 90%, there's this massive opportunity for both electricity and biofuels. Jeremy brings an engineer's practical approach to thinking about these possible changes and has done his best to include those harder to predict variables when he looks ahead. When it comes down to thinking about the impact of electric vehicles over the next 50 years, it starts by understanding the likely timeline. So the number that I think makes sense to start with is, so people are talking about Let's stop selling gasoline-powered cars in 2035. What would that mean if we basically ramped down the sales of gasoline-powered vehicles so that by 2035, we're basically at 100% electric? Cars are on the road for, say, 15 years. Sometimes they're on the road a little longer, but actually they tend to drive less and less each year. If you stop selling gasoline-powered cars in 2035, then by 2050, you really won't be using much gasoline at all. You get down to 5% or something of where we are now. So that's really the end point. But even in that case, it won't be uh, linear. So if that's 30 years from now, you won't be half at 15 years. The short-term change will be slower and then the long-term change will be faster. So you'd expect this accelerating transition. This may seem like an errant detail, but it's actually really important. Another way to capture what Jeremy is saying here is that as humans, we tend to overestimate what change is possible in the short term and underestimate what change is possible in the long term. That's because change often occurs exponentially rather than linearly. In other words, initial changes are often hard and happen very slowly. But over time, the effort it takes to change becomes lessened. Change becomes easier and easier and thus happens faster and faster. Further, to Jeremy's point about radically reducing petroleum demand, it's not just the transition to electric vehicles that will be at play here. We can expect vehicle fuel efficiency to continue to improve as well. And it's possible that ethanol could play a key role in that transition, too. In the next decade, you might see a 20, 30, probably less than a 30% drop, maybe 25% drop in gasoline sales. And then it would speed up after that. And so if the transition from E to E15 happens by early 2030s, that's essentially can offset the declining sales of gasoline. I think those two things can happen in parallel. You can basically cut the petroleum component of gasoline faster, and you can do that without basically making the best use of the ethanol production capacity and infrastructure we've got now. It's not very complicated math, right? If you cut gasoline consumption by a third, but you increase the blending to E15, to 50% more, then those two things cancel out perfectly. And you're basically at the same amount of ethanol, but a steeper cut in petroleum. And I think that's something I, I wish more people appreciated. But this idea is either ethanol is great, we should have a lot more ethanol, we should increase ethanol production as fast as possible. Why wouldn't we do that? And then on the other hand, like we need to go to electricity. Why would we invest in ethanol when we're going to electricity? Ethanol's finished, forget about it. And really what this says is, we can go to electricity as fast as possible and not put a lot more money into building ethanol production capacity, but we can continue to improve that capacity, continue to make it cleaner and continue to use it and take advantage of it for, for, for a couple of decades to come. So in the next decade, fairly modest changes because selling E15 isn't a huge hurdle given where the fleet is and, and the infrastructure. 
that's all that's necessary to offset declining sales of gasoline from electricity for the next decade. This message, that ethanol and electricity do not have to be fundamentally competitive in the transportation space, is an idea that was echoed by many of our experts. It's a perspective rooted, in part, in a limited understanding of the sheer scale of the transportation sector. Sometimes people frame this as like, the electric vehicle industry is going to eat ethanol's lunch, and it's a battle between the two. But if you actually just take a step back and look at the numbers, biofuels account for about 5% of transportation energy in the United States. And basically petroleum's like more than 90% and has been for, for more than 50 years. Now. And it's not like electricity growing from 1% to 5 and 10 and even 50% is, is a threat to biofuels. The way I think about it is if we can get in 2035, sell no more gasoline powered cars, then by 2050, we could see total liquid fuels used for transportation fall by 85%. That's three times more than the biofuels we're using now. So that would still leave room for biofuels to triple in that time frame. And realistically, right, crop yields in corn have grown by 1% a year. Actually, right, it's, it's not even a percentage, steady percentage, it's actually a number of bushels a year. But like tripling by 2030 is a is a huge opportunity for, for the existing biofuels, but also to bring on these new feedstocks. And that's even without looking at the chemical industry and all these other things that we'll need to replace in a decarbonized economy. So yeah, this idea that uh, electricity is a threat to ethanol really comes from a lack of kind of thinking creatively about how we can reshape the system. The University of Illinois Scott Irwin pointed out, too, that there are still serious barriers to electrifying the U.S. fleet. And he agrees that these limitations mean that demand for ethanol is unlikely to seriously diminish in the coming years. I'm convinced that the transition is going to take a lot longer than I thought. And I think some of the most aggressive EV proponents think. First off, just the sheer size of the inventory, rolling stock we have that consumes gasoline and diesel is, I think the Americans own something like 300 million cars and 1% are electric. And then secondly, I think we'll slow things down is the infrastructure needed to support EVs. We can wave our hands all we want, but there are two issues there. One, having an electricity grid that will support that much charging demand. We are a long ways from that. And then secondly, even if we have the grid, are we really getting anywhere in terms of climate change? Which is the idea of using dirty electricity to power clean electric vehicles versus petroleum. Are we, are we actually getting anywhere? The reality and the truth of that will come out. So I just think that 20, 30 years from now, I can definitely see a future it's all electric, probably autonomous electric vehicles by then. But we, we've got a, a longer period of a transition towards that future so it's 2021, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, we're going to be using half as much gasoline in 2028 or 2030. I just don't see it. Electric vehicles are going to, they're going to dent it. They're going to take some, but I don't see any near term in the immediate future cratering of gasoline usage as an existential threat to ethanol, at least for the next five, six years and probably much longer. Given the likelihood that the transition away from liquid fuels could take longer than current EV advocates are hoping, there has been an urgent focus on making corn ethanol itself a cleaner fuel as part of the overall goal of making the whole transportation sector less of a serious emitter. Jeremy points out that the first step in cleaning up transport is actually optimizing or even reducing the transportation footprint overall. So transportation is a big source of pollution, right? The biggest source of pollution in the United States. And Obviously, the first thing we want to do is not just assume that every car on the highway and every trip that everybody takes is the best possible way to get around, right? We really need to think about how does our system work, how is it serving people, and how do we make sure that people have equitable access to mobility and that our goods movement system is working for people, but also isn't causing you know, disproportionate air pollution impacts and overburdened communities. And so there's a lot to fix in what are all the cars and trucks doing and not just 
making them a little more efficient or a little less polluting. And then the next piece is, of course, we can make the cars more efficient and we can make the cars electric. And with all of that, we can just reduce demand for all kinds of energy and especially demand for liquid fuels. And only after we've done those things, it's in that context that I'm thinking like, okay, now we've got these liquid fuels. How do we make sure that those are as clean as possible? And that's the context in which I'm thinking about the biofuels fit in and, and how do we make sure that the biofuels are getting cleaner makes sense. But certainly it's no substitute for doing those other things. And I don't see them in competition. It's less about how do you fill up all of the things that oil are doing with biofuels and more about how do we make this uh, decarbonized clean transportation system and how do we fuel it with electricity and with low carbon biofuels and other solutions. I think the opportunity comes in thinking about how do we work together to deliver these emission reductions, both from replacing petroleum with electricity and renewable electricity, but also at the same time, continuing to make sure that biofuels get cleaner and, and have a productive and useful role in our transportation system and broadly in you know decarbonizing. Again, Jeremy makes clear here that encouraging reduced driving or even electric vehicle production doesn't have to mean reduced ethanol usage. And when it comes to minimizing the overall amount of emissions in the transportation system, ethanol, particularly cleaner ethanol, could be a meaningful part of that. Hannah Breitz agrees. She sees EVs as an incomplete solution to reducing emissions from transportation, in large part because they are a solution that takes a lot of time. Too much time, given the U.S.'s current goals around climate mitigation. When I look at what it's going to take to try to decarbonize the the transportation sector, I don't personally think that EVs are going to be able to do it alone. In part because all the vehicles that we're selling that are on the road now, internal combustion engines still make up the vast majority of certainly all heavy-duty vehicles and still the vast majority of light-duty vehicles and passenger vehicles as well. And all those cars are going to be on the road for a long time. And so if you're only relying on electric vehicles to decarbonize transportation, what you're relying on is a turnover in the fleet where you're just saying, yep, everything else is getting sold right now. We're just going to accept that it'll pollute as much as it is now forevermore. And like that is, that's not acceptable to me. That is not a recipe in my mind for more rapid decarbonization. And that's why I still do have an interest in alternative liquid fuels, including biofuels, as a way for saying, how do we not only decarbonize through a fleet turnover, but how do we decarbonize with lower carbon fuels that can actually do something today? But then the question is, well, biofuels, they're not this panacea. They are lower carbon, but they're not as low carbon as we'd like to be. So how do you figure out ways that you can incentivize lower carbon biofuels? And that's where I think potentially the ag carbon markets can get to be really interesting because there is potential to have much lower carbon biofuels, but right now they're not economical. Hannah argues that ag carbon credits might be one way to change that economic reality and make a less carbon intensive biofuel more profitable all along the supply chain. If you were thinking about it more in the context of saying, how do we play in carbon markets or how do we play in LCFS credits, not just looking at RFS volumes, then you might be interested more in some of the carbon reductions as a way to maximize the value. So there's different ways that you can get volume that you can be trying to increase the per gallon benefit as opposed to just saying, how do we get the most gallons? And that is, again, something that I just haven't seen a lot of discussion around of saying, yeah, let's take this seriously as an industry. How do we really reduce the carbon footprint? How can we find better ways to make this ethanol so that it has a lower carbon footprint? So what are the ways that you can stack these different sorts of incentives, whether you're earning RFS credits and LCFS credits and some ag carbon market credits? And I think it's going to have to end up being some kind of stacking of lots and lots of different subsidies and incentives in order to create ways for farmers to have some transformative land use practices to be figuring out how do you build soil carbon at the same time as you're taking off some carbon. But how you actually get there and fine tune it, how do you make sure that those credits are actually meaningful and not just hot air? That's a really tricky um, kind of policy and market design. A tricky design problem indeed. Whether what comes next for ag carbon markets is a policy or a market is still very much up in the air. 
But you heard Hanna refer to one possible option in these comments, an LCSF, or a low-carbon fuel standard. The state of California has been a pioneer in developing alternative fuel policy in the U.S., and many of our experts pointed to various state-level LCFS programs, like the one in California, as possible models that could be considered on a federal level if there was an interest in updating the renewable fuel standard. Here's UC Davis's Aaron Smith describing what exactly a low-carbon fuel standard is. The low-carbon fuel standard is ostensibly supposed to be fuel neutral. So essentially what they do is they say, let's set a number for what the carbon intensity of diesel and gasoline fuel should be. And so here's what the standard is. And petroleum is dirtier than the standard. So in order to hit the standard, what you have to do is you have to mix the supply with some of the dirty stuff. You have to mix in some cleaner stuff. And so if you're producing a fuel that's dirtier than what the standard is, such as petroleum, gasoline, or diesel, then you earn deficits against the standard. And if you're producing fuel that's cleaner than the standard, then you earn credits and the credits and deficits have to balance each other out. And so the thing that makes it fuel neutral is that you can earn credits from using ethanol. You can earn credits from uh, renewable diesel, which is now, I think, over 20%, 25% of California diesel is actually renewable. You can earn credits from electric vehicles. You can now earn credits on this program, which is highly relevant for agriculture through processing dairy manure waste into uh, biogas. That's a massive source of of credits. And and so in principle, the idea would be this is going to let the market figure out which are the cleanest fuels because the, the cleaner is your fuel, the lower is the measured carbon intensity, the more credits you get, and the dirtier is your fuel, the more deficits you get. So you're cleaning up the, the fuel supply in a way that doesn't force us just to use ethanol. Jeremy, among others, noted that there are a lot of real advantages to a low-carbon fuel standard versus the more rigid structure of the current RFS. The first one is that, you know, at the highest level, as it says, we need to recognize the importance of electricity and renewable electricity as part of this process, reducing emissions, cutting oil use, cleaning up our transportation fuels. So that's someplace where the RFS has fallen short and where the, these clean fuel standards, I think, make a lot more sense in the modern world, recognizing that's a really important part of this project and that, that we need the liquid fuels and the electricity to work together pulling in the same direction. And then the other big thing is the clean fuel standards recognize that all the fuels can get cleaner than they are now and that it's worthwhile to provide those incentives and recognize that progress. That means that you can make ethanol in a way that's more or less polluting. You can do that for all the fuels. And so we don't want to only focus on, you know, the cellulosic biofuels or on hitting E10 or a kind of discrete set of targets. We also want to focus on leaving the door open for innovation in in emissions reductions anywhere in that supply chain. So when the RFS and the LCFS were being considered, the scenarios for what kind of fuels would be used to comply with those policies were very similar, right? They both were kind of banking on cellulosic biofuels. And when the cellulosic biofuels didn't show up at the volumes that people had hoped, the more flexible approach of the clean fuel standard was able to say, oh, there's electrification, there's carbon intensity reductions in corn, they were able to adapt over time without having accurately, it wasn't that they accurately predicted the future, it was that they were just more flexible about it. This additional flexibility in future federal biofuels policy could be tremendously beneficial, not just for the goals we have around reducing carbon emissions, which apply directly to agriculture given the impact of climate change on production, but also by creating possibilities to add more value with every gallon. As luck would have it, both 2022 and 2023 promise to be big years for the RFS. A scheduled reset of the law will require the EPA to announce its intentions for administering the RFS going forward. Scott Irwin is already anticipating this being a contentious affair. Oh, that war has already started in Washington, D.C. I call that the big reset because it's very important to remember the RFS does not sunset as legislation in 2023. Nothing changes except the tables that specified the volume mandates that were starting points in setting the annual RVOs end in 2022. Nothing else changes. Now, practically, there's some big impacts because the EPA director, in consultation with the Department of Energy and USDA, then is to set 
new annual standards, RBOs. This is, again, a critical point. There will be RBOs, which are the annual renewable volume obligations, for time immemorial until the United States Congress repeals the RFS. And as long as Senator Grassley's around, that's never going to happen. The real problem here, according to Scott, is how key players, critics mainly, might use this opportunity to put pressure on the biofuels marketplace. Basically, the refining industry thinks that the big reset gives them all the tools they need to give the RFS a huge haircut. Clearly, they're angling for that. Ag groups know this, and they are trying to set up to counter that. All of this is going to just end up in potentially decades of court battles. Here's one way. It's probably possible to redo the metrics for which you measure compliance. Right now, it's based on energy equivalence to ethanol. They did that initially when the RFS started because it was the simplest thing that they could think of. But there is an effort to maybe make that based on carbon intensity scores, which would put ethanol at a even bigger disadvantage relative to advanced biofuels in the accounting for the RFS. So that's one sneaky way that ethanol could be disadvantaged. I don't think it would be much of a hit from where we are today on ethanol use and corn ethanol grind, because again, the economics say you should continue putting 10% ethanol in all the gasoline that we use, regular gasoline. There'd be a lot of fear that wouldn't happen, but that's what the economics predicts would happen if a haircut was given. The haircut, it would stop the growth of higher ethanol blends. So it would uh, really cut the potential for future growth of ethanol through higher blends. The EPA, in consultation with the USDA, will be in charge of defining this reset. So how are policymakers at USDA thinking about the future years of biofuel policy? Seth Meyer, chief economist at the Department of Ag, says figuring out that policy vision requires updating the data. And the world looks very different in 2021 and 2022 than it did in 2007. When we think about the next five years, I think, one, you have to have a policy decision about the path going forward. So, hey, folks need to understand the RFS doesn't end in 2022. EPA is supposed to come out and give its vision of what it looks like going forward. Okay, so what does that vision look like? How is that vision challenged by U.S. gasoline demand? The forecasts, unlike what they were when we passed the EISA, they're for falling gasoline consumption, not rising gasoline consumption. So again, that blend wall keeps coming closer and closer. So you've got realities of the market in terms of what does the potential market for ethanol look like? Policy discussions, court cases, you know, E15, what is the what does the future of E15 look like as a way to say E15 would offset these issues with falling gasoline consumption as a way to expand domestic ethanol use? You've got issues of where are oil prices headed? There's all the usual market uncertainty and mix it in with political uncertainty. And I think there's a, a, a lot of combination of both market issues and policy issues that have to come together, but somebody needs to strike a vision. And that's up to EBA. What that vision might look like is not clear, but Jeremy Martin has some ideas. He says that though the RFS achieved its goal of radically increasing biofuel production and use in the U.S., the size and pace of the shift and the pressure that it put on agricultural markets, he says was probably foreseeable and definitely problematic. And he hopes that moving forward, a policy vision might focus on new goals, more similar to the low-carbon fuel standard that Hanna described. That policy was always about making more ethanol and making more biofuels. And I think as we look forward, I would say the question is, okay, ethanol is a big part of our agricultural system. And I don't think just making it a bigger and bigger part and going for bigger and bigger numbers is a good outcome. But taking that part of our agricultural market and making sure that it's really leading the way in emissions reductions that we're making progress in, in cutting pollution. This is supposed to be part of 
the, the cleaner part of the gasoline, let's make sure it's as clean as possible. And if this corn is being sold to mitigate climate change, let's make sure that we're producing it in a way which also mitigates climate change. And I think really getting the most emissions reductions out of that investment that we've already made. I've been talking mostly about a national clean fuel standard, and I'm thinking about basically new legislation to take the spirit of the RFS or parts of the spirit of the RFS and really uh, bring it up to date with the kind of current knowledge about what it'll take to decarbonize transportation and what are those kind of opportunities and policies that have worked. There's another question about what is the rulemaking that the EPA has to do to set standards that look out past 2022. And of course, that's constrained by the legal language of the RFS, the statutory language of the RFS and the stakeholders there. But I don't think that process can really produce as broad a shift. And, and I don't anticipate that suddenly that will become mostly about, you know, transportation electrification. Because the key thing there is what are they going to set for 2023 and 2024? And these things are really coming up soon. So I guess setting the standards out past 2023, that's going to be a pretty constrained process, both legally and also what we've seen over and over again is the political constraints there are really tough. Though the RFS reset probably doesn't provide significant opportunity to increase the flexibility of U.S. biofuel policy, there may be other opportunities to achieve these improvements in the future. And again, as Hanna noted, a low-carbon fuel standard or another kind of policy that offers farmers and ethanol producers a premium for reducing the carbon intensity of their corn ethanol could be a promising market for ag carbon credits attached to commodity corn and soybean production. But Jeremy noted here that we should be cautious about focusing on combining ethanol and decarbonization in agriculture in a single policy. I think it would be a mistake if the way that we tried to improve the sustainability and resilience of our agricultural system was by thinking about the best transportation fuel policy, right? So we need good agriculture policies that are focused on agriculture and make sense to the stakeholders that really understand. And then on my side and the transportation walk side, like we need to say, okay, if we're using crops to make fuels, we should use the cleanest crops and we should recognize that we should support that, but we shouldn't like try to write the rules for good farming in the context of thinking about transportation fuels. I think it makes a lot of sense for the fuels policies to support and, and recognize those opportunities in agriculture. But I think it's important that the agricultural space, that the stakeholders there work out what makes sense from a business perspective, from an equity perspective, from a climate perspective. And when they do, we in the fuel space have a lot of money. If you think about the credits that could come just from this kind of policy, the numbers are significant. Obviously, it's not a small share of corn and vegetable oil that goes into fuel markets, and if those markets would recognize a premium for better practices and better crops, that's a significant opportunity. Given the possibility that simply driving more value for cleaner corn ethanol may not be economical anytime soon, another option, both as a focus for industry advocates and for policymakers who hope to maintain and grow ethanol moving forward, is, according to Hanna, to look to parts of the transportation sector where ethanol still has considerable opportunity to displace a fossil fuel. I still see there as being sectors where ethanol and other biofuels may have an important role to play in terms of decarbonization because we're not likely to electrify them anytime soon. And that includes both the heavy duty sector, as well as aviation, as well as certain segments of passenger vehicles that I don't think will be electrified. And that includes for a lot of rural communities. Batteries are still expensive. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid on electric pickup trucks. So I think there will probably still be a role to play and the onus is on the ethanol industry to figure out where are those niches where they can still have a large benefit in terms of the environmental impact and how to get there. Because if it just becomes a zero-sum game about EVs versus ethanol, ethanol is not going to win. And so it's about figuring out where are these niches where we, you're not going to electrify, that you really still can have a very important impact in decarbonization. And where can you find opportunities, perhaps with plug-in hybrids, so that it, again, doesn't become a zero-sum game, but you're really trying to figure out ways where you can work together with electrification as well. And that's partly from an environmental perspective, and that's partly from a resilience perspective, too. There are many reasons that you might want to have plug-in hybrids from purely a resilience way of thinking about things. So I think there's some potentially some really interesting reframing 
to go on where, where as an industry, ethanol and other biofuels are going to have to find new ways to sell themselves based on these niches where they think they can have an environmental benefit. Um, because obviously there's going to be segments that care more about the agricultural interest and rural development. And that, that kind of bedrock of political support isn't going to go away anytime soon. But if you need to build a bigger coalition, you have to find ways to have those environmental benefits. And I don't think they've necessarily done a great job of that yet. And they certainly have not done a good job of selling themselves. But from Jeremy's perspective, serving these smaller, more specialized markets will not be enough in the near future to maintain the ethanol sector or to meet the U.S.'s environmental goals. Instead, there will have to be some improvement, either through policy, market design, or some other measure, to improve the carbon efficiency of corn ethanol. In the next decade or so, I think it's really about continuing to make progress in reducing the emissions and reducing the environmental impact of the fuels we're producing. So I see that as the key to show that this biofuels industry can actually deliver these big emissions reductions and can address some of the other environmental concerns, whether that's water quality and soil health and runoff and all the other things that are, are part of the set of concerns around corn and, and soybean production is how do you do that? How do you show that you're on the right path there? And I think that sort of brings us to this carbon markets. So in, in my mind, the big picture is we have a decade or so where we could not see the biofuels industry collapse, but also not see it skyrocket. And, and if we can use that time to show like we can really be smart about how we're doing this, we can enhance soil health, we can justify investments so that if these policies are supporting incentives for building soil health, we can show that we can actually deliver on that. And I think if you're doing that, then that, that puts you in a strong position to get into these other markets. Maybe that's my a difference in perspective of mine. And I worked for a long time as an engineer. And it's nice to imagine the completely different future where we just erase everything we have now and we start over with a clean sheet of paper. How do we get from here to there and, and really showing, okay, that's where I want to go. Here's the steps I need to take to get there. And here's the progress I made on those steps in the last five or 10 years. And I think if we can really show that I really build confidence that this is a smart thing to do and we should keep doing it and we should keep supporting it. This final note from Jeremy is an important one to consider when we think about the future of biofuels policy. It can be nice to imagine a world where the past doesn't necessarily dictate or even play a role in possible futures. But in the real world, we know that it does. And that's critical to keep in mind as we imagine the future of the RFS. In other words, whatever improvements we want to make, we don't get to make those changes in the past. We aren't starting from square one. Here's David. We can all society collectively wake up and say, wow, RFS was a big giant flop and we should have never done it. But that's a very different conclusion than saying we should repeal RFS today. And I think part of this is recognizing that you can agree that the decision was bad, but it's a very different starting point or a very different sunk cost from deciding should we or should we not pursue this technology in the future. And I think that's something that we don't think about a lot today because I think it's easy to use today's information, look at RFS and say it's bad policy, then we should do something about it. But I think we have to realize we made the decision at a very different point in time, but now the decision to undo it is a completely different set of criteria that we have to evaluate. And so there is a lot of sunk cost. There's a lot of things baked into it. Uh, and it's not as easy as undoing it as we might initially think. We'll talk a lot more about sunk cost and evaluating past decisions and what we should do with them in the present in our wrap-up episode next week. But for now, let's look beyond the next decade. What lies in the more distant future for biofuels? That's after the break. We all know the importance of drinking upstream from the herd. At AEI.ag, we believe the same applies to information and news. For the same reason. Drink upstream from the herd. Be your own guru. According to George Washington University energy expert Scott Sklar, a key reason why ethanol must remain part of the U.S.'s energy picture is because of the uncertainties that lie ahead in the U.S.'s near and more long-term future. We are going to have disruptions in energy, period. I am telling you, no fault of our own. It's going to be, in some cases, weather, in some cases, terrorism, in some cases, just faulty infrastructure like we saw with the gas pipeline. So we're going to see all that. And we want to have options, viable options. And ethanol is one of those industries that it is a viable option, but can be even a greater viable option. What if the unthinkable happens, right? What happens if your oil pipelines go down, whether they're old, 
whether it's a cybersecurity issue, whether it's an earthquake, I don't care, tornado. And we, by the way, we have pipeline breaks all over the damn place all the time. I, I keep track. I have a whole class about it. It's very depressing. What do you do? What happens if that converges like we saw the whole grid go down in Texas? Well, what does that mean? And so really prepare and create systems that can withstand or are more viable on what's becoming just more frequent occurrences. In addition to all that, I mentioned that we have a pandemic going on. Gee, so we have a lot of stuff coming together that heretofore hadn't, and we have very old infrastructure, and we need to make sure that the agricultural sector and the food processing sector is functioning 100% of the time, period. Just period. You need water, you need food, you need electricity, you need communication. Those are the big four. And, and ethanol is part of that. So ethanol is a great fuel. And there's no reason we shouldn't use it and use it more and make sure the energy balance is good and make sure the whole resource system within it is sustainable, doesn't cause any other environmental problems. All that's true. And then, of course, there's hydrogen that could be made from renewables and also from biomass. And we should use that. And of course, there's electric, if you can charge it with renewables, makes sense. So we have lots of options and we should promote them all. They're not one or another. And actually, you don't want one option because they're not all right for all the things we need to do in, a law, in one of the largest industrialized nations in the world. Scott argues that this is a question of resilience. In other words, of having many viable options and backup plans ready to go so that if and when the worst happens, we aren't left scrambling. And agriculture in particular, he says, needs more thinking about resiliency. Electric vehicles are great, but they're really not great for uh, farm vehicles. They're really not great for uh, heavy trucks. They're not great for uh, lots of other things. So as with everything else we're talking about, you want a lot of options in the market so that consumers can choose. Really, you want a maximum amount of choice. And so what biofuels does is give uh, rural communities that have access to the fuel, agricultural vehicles that tend to be heavier and less acclimated to an electric solution, and uh, heavy-duty truck. Don't get into catfights between clean technologies. I think that's always silly. And the goal ought to be, we want to maximize clean options and bring as much as we can, as fast as we can, and create as many jobs and reduce as much emissions as possible. And we ought to do it fast. And every we need every single thing, every tool, every option at our disposal. And that will strengthen the country and the global economy in huge ways. So if I was uh, king of ethanol, I would say I want to still keep this, the RFS strengthened, get rid of all these damn waivers most of the time and keep it going, increase consumer awareness of how it helps the agricultural community, but also to understand that there are going to be other tools and we ought to look at tools. There's a tools on decarbonization. There's ways to reduce emissions, not just the Clean Air Act emissions, but greenhouse gas emissions. Then step out of just the RFS paradigm into what are some of the other tools being used, maybe in other areas of sustainable energy, and say, how does that fit to us and how do we embrace it? Seth Meyer also believes that ethanol advocates should be thinking about resiliency within their strategies, given that the previous narrow focus of what constitutes the ethanol market has left the industry in a vulnerable position. So I think you can continue to pursue E15, E85. I think gasoline demand is in flux, absolutely. But there is an opportunity here. You know, I see folks with the court cases on E15 as absolutely an opportunity. But sustainable aviation fuel, opportunity. More bio-based products, a big opportunity. So I, I absolutely think that there are opportunities there and I think agriculture has to have its fingers on all of these things. Don't put any egg, don't put eggs in any single basket. I think we saw some of what having a lot of eggs in a basket is going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about the depressed mood in the ag sector prior to August 2020 sparked by the fact that I don't know about you, but I had the same tank of gas in my car for three or four months. That's that's 
destruction of ethanol demand right there. So you have all your eggs in that basket. It makes that basket vulnerable from market disruptions and policy disruptions. So get yourself into aviation fuel, get yourself into bioproducts, get yourself into all these things for which ag is, could be a good contributor. So where does all this leave us? I think, unfortunately, despite the possibilities that are out there in the ethanol space, it certainly lost the glow that lured so many smart, enthusiastic people to it in the beginning. Perhaps it's just a sign of ethanol living long enough to become the villain, as David said in episode one. There are many reasons that we've touched on over the course of this series that would explain where ethanol has found itself, but I think ASU's Hannah Breitz captured it well. I have turned a little bit away from biofuels as an area of study, in part because it's so unpopular. You know, nobody wants to publish papers on ethanol. Nobody wants to listen to these things at conferences. Everyone just wants to talk about EVs. So I've shifted over some of my research to look at EVs and renewable electricity and things like that. So I'm a little bit, like I'd say the last two or three years, I've kind of stopped going to ethanol conferences and like stepped a little bit out of the loop on that. But where had the experts, the interest, and perhaps more importantly, the money gone instead? Vani Estes offered one observation. Suddenly, all the people that had been put, putting money in clean tech, which cellulosic ethanol was part of, start. they did the same pivot towards, because people were starting to talk about ag tech. And so I, I sat on probably five panels of clean tech investors trying to pivot to ag tech. And the, the title of the panel was always, is ag tech the new clean tech? So there was this whole industry just pivoted to, okay, agriculture looks good. Let's look over here. Many of these investors, who were initially intrigued by the promises of corn or cellulosic ethanol, have likely moved on to invest in technologies like ag carbon markets. Hanna says that when surveying this world, especially at the intersection of liquid fuel and carbon markets, farmers and investors alike should exercise caution. The overpromising in emerging technologies for decarbonization and energy, there's so much hype. Everyone's always overpromising, and sometimes they overdeliver. But I have, I play a fun game with my students almost where I love to show headlines and over and over the way that everybody describes things like as a game changer, this technology is going to be a game changer. This is a game changer. I just tell them every time you see that word, be very, very cautious. It's a joke. It's a joke in my class, game changers, because they're the, the history of overpromising in clean energy has been bad for many things, except solar and wind have overdelivered. But for many other things, there's always a lot of overpromising. And yet, despite all the headwinds and disinterest and the problematic overpromising, Hana hasn't given up on biofuels, not only as a market, but as an interesting idea worthy of seeing into the future. It's like in one little microcosm, all these different complex systems coming together of ag and energy and you know everything else and like human society and urban planning and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, God, it's such a rich area. And I wish more people were interested in talking about it. And that's been, I have one other colleague at ASU who has studied biofuels and both of us will laugh sometime where we're like, oh my God, we spent all these years building up our expertise during our PhDs in this area, because at that time, that's what everyone thought the future was going to be. And now not only does no one care in environmental land, they don't even want to hear about it. Even though I'm like, whether you think ethanol is good or bad, it is a huge part of our energy sector. You can't ignore it. Like we need to talk about it and think about it and figure out ways to make it better and figure out ways to make it, it work and or, or, like we're not. But but it's like an important thing to be discussing and everyone's attention just like solely focused on EVs as this silver bullet. I have to believe that at some point the pendulum is gonna swing away from EVs to where I don't know. Hannah's comments brought me all the way back around to the conversation David and Brent had at the very beginning of this podcast. It's human nature to look for quick solutions to hard problems. Society will very likely be thinking about different challenges that it needs to tackle in 10 or 20 years down the road. And so carbon could find itself on the other side of that argument. And in fact, I think there are a lot of technologies out there that are going to think about this. So right, batteries. Batteries right now are sort of going to solve all a lot of problems. How long will that still be a problem that we need to solve? And how long until society views, you know, lithium ion batteries as having some, a bigger footprint than we currently see, right? Or more negatives than maybe positives. So it's just always important to recognize so the problems that society wants to tackle changes. And as we do that, the 
the methods that we use to size up the challenges change and so we might have different calculus uh, for how we evaluate these priorities. David's mention of batteries here is telling because what do electric vehicles use but a lot of lithium batteries? Lithium mines in Nevada are already raising environmental concerns and it seems more than possible that at some future time we are as skeptical of lithium batteries as we currently are of corn ethanol. Will ag carbon markets have helped clean up corn ethanol by then? Or will some kind of cellulosic ethanol or other advanced biofuel be more economically viable? Without policy intervention, it's difficult to predict which technologies will triumph. But what's clear at this point is every solution has its trade-offs. The best solution depends on what we care about the most. And the solution that we actually end up choosing depends on even more variables, people, and priorities than that. There are still many, many uncertainties in the future of the ethanol sector, many of which are dictated by events happening well outside the ag space and beyond agriculture's sphere of influence. But for the time being, it seems likely that corn does not have an uncertain future as part of the fuel market, because regardless of the consequences, internal combustion engines seem here to stay, at least for the next 30 years. We didn't talk very much about ag carbon markets today, mostly because these markets have a long way to go before they face the challenges that the ethanol sector is dealing with today. Nevertheless, here we are. We have one episode left, where David, Brent, and I will look back at the lessons we've learned this season about both ethanol and ag carbon markets. We'll tie up a few loose ends and see what we found as far as answers to whether or not corn will save America. Next time. AEI Presents Corn Saves America is a production of AEI Premium, produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with special thanks to David Widmar, Brent Gloy, and Sarah Hubbard. Our music is by Valentina Grimnova and Boris Skolsky. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and look out for Ag Economic Insights and the three of us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and the website at AEI.ag. If you haven't had enough ag history and economics, make sure you head to the website to learn more about becoming an AEI Premium subscriber. As a subscriber, you'll get access to a lot more content from the three of us and from the rest of the AEI team, including Megan, Jeff, Michael, Mason, and Aaron. I guess policy could have induced us to this point where that was the highest return Escanthus or switchgrass would have been a crop. Policy could have pushed us in a direction where switchgrass was the thing that was super profitable for all of us to do. You know, it's interesting thinking about the biofuels debate where we are today, and it makes you wonder where we would be if we would have got those switchgrass gallons on board. There's sort of a parallel universe there where gasoline consumption has been flat for the last decade. And we're already kind of fighting over market share for gas versus ethanol. What if you would have put in this cellulosic ethanol? That would have been any, another source of frustration.